0: We're starting a new chapter in the book of the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we're just going to kind of introduce this subject today. But the title of the message is Jesus' Last Word on Divorce. Jesus' Last Word on Divorce. And just in way of introduction, pray that you'll be patient as we work our way up to the text this morning, because I think it's important that we lay down a proper uh, ground foundation. For our study on this subject, what God has joined together, let no man separate. These are words that I've uttered several times at the end of a marriage ceremony which I performed, joining a couple together. And it's often used in Christian marriage ceremonies as couples come together. But you know, beloved, Men are separating as well as women at alarming uh, rates today in our society. I was on the internet the other day and I found a website called Divorce Dilemma. Subtitle is New Rules with Meg and Jean. And here's what Meg and Jean have to say about divorce. First of all, they said divorce affects at least 50% of marriages. And that's a, that's a percentage that I will argue with and I'll put up a good fight against. I don't believe that that's true. Uh, whether it is perceived as positive or negative, they say on their website, we can assure you that is still a major life event that comes with its trials and tribulations. And here's Meg and Jean's mission for their Divorce Dilemma website. We want to take the taboo out of divorce. The benefits of a divorce can far outweigh the negatives depending upon the situation. As a life-altering event, it deserves more attention. Opening up and sharing enables us to make better decisions. Hearing others Stories, successes, and failures can be immensely enlightening and helpful. We're creating a forum through this website and podcast and, well, soon to be on the air and a call-in radio talk show where people will feel comfortable talking about divorce and everything that comes with it. And here are Megan Jean's rules of life. Rules of life and relationships are changing, Megan Jean say, We should not be exclusively dictated to by the old rules of society or religion. We need to be responsible for developing our own rules without breaking the current laws or with malicious intent, of course. What works for one person may not work for another, especially in today's society. Society and human relationships are constantly, look at this word, evolving. People want to talk about divorce. Everyone has their own story. Some may want to share. Others may want to listen. And they close off the little introduction there by this. Live by your own rules. These are the new rules. Very enticing. Kind of just woos you in there. Well, as we look at today's text in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12... I want to suggest to you that it's no coincidence that Matthew follows chapter 18 with chapter 19 and his subject matter that he talks about. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus just got done talking about what? Forgiveness. And here, in Matthew 19, he begins with a question about divorce, but he really talks about marriage. And you know what? Forgiveness and marriage are closely related, right? (laughs) I mean, anybody that's married knows that. It's kind of common sense. In this passage, Jesus does more talk about the ideal marriage. And he also talks about the rules of divorce. And I want to suggest to you, it doesn't take a Theologian, to understand that God's not too crazy about the idea of divorce. He's just not. But on the other hand, it doesn't take a sociologist to understand that divorce is a major problem in our society today and in our culture. Now, it's not ever easy for a pastor to address this kind of subject matter because, regardless of where you're at on the issue, I understand. That when I'm talking about divorce, about 20% of you probably have been through such a thing in your lives. In any gathering of adults, that's roughly the number. You hear this statistic, 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Have you ever heard that? 50% of all marriages end in divorce. So we're just going to live together. Okay, that's really going to help out the situation. But you know what? I want to suggest to you that's a misleading statistic. I don't believe that statistic for a second. As a matter of fact, honest studies on the subject matter of divorce, and you can find these, these, these statistics on your own, the figure is closer to 20%. Now, that figure is constantly going up. And it's tragically still high. And it's getting higher. I don't know if you remember, a couple years ago, there was a survey that came out that said 27%. Of born-again Christians have been through a divorce but only 24% of those who are not born again have been through a divorce (laughs) and the premise was gee how's that God thing working for you are born-again Christians more likely to divorce their spouses than unbelievers I, I, I have a hard time with that well these studies said yes And the church was all up in arms about it, and everybody was, wow, this is a real problem. But when you dig deeper, and you understand, first of all and foremost, the life-changing power of the gospel, you find their statistics a little off. And you begin to wonder, what in their mind is a born-again Christian? If they're saying that they polled born-again Christians and 27% of born-again Christians have been divorced and only 24% of those who are not born-again Christians, well, who constitutes the group of born-again Christians? Well, here's what the research firm did when they conducted this survey. What, in their mind, is a born-again Christian? Well, first of all, it's an individual who, number one, claims to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is still important to him today. That was the first qualifying factor. Secondly, a born-again Christian is someone who believes that he will go to heaven because he has confessed his sins and accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And based upon those two questions, they said, oh, okay, this group is born again. To categorize an individual as born again simply based on two simple questions is rather far-fetched, I believe. And it fails to recognize the the scriptural truth, that not everyone who professes eternal life possesses eternal life. Matter of fact, Jesus himself said that in Matthew 7. We've been through that. That many would come to him on the day of judgment, crying out to him, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? All their good works dripping off their lips, fully expecting him to say, oh yeah, come on in. And he turns to them, and he says, without hesitation and with authority, he says, I never knew you. Depart. Matter of fact, Scripture is filled with warnings of those who confess Christ with their mouths, but do not possess genuine saving faith. You can see it in Matthew 7, 6, Luke 6, 46. Titus one sixteen and James, 1 John. So what about the born-again Christians in the survey? Who were they? Where does this group of individuals stand? Well, according to the poll, to a poll by the same research firm, this is interesting, based on the same group of people, they asked them these questions. And here's their findings. They found out that 15% of born again Christians deny the resurrection of Christ. 28% believe that Jesus committed sins during his earth here on his life here on earth. Listen to this, 34% believe that if a person is good enough, he can earn a place in heaven. These are quote born again Christians. Answering these questions. 26% believe that it doesn't matter what faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons. This guy with a big church down in Texas it probably falls into that category. And this was the teller. 45% of these, quote, born-again Christians believe that Satan is a symbol of evil rather than an actual being. In other words, many of these, quote, born-again Christians are not born-again at all. They're deceived. The failure to make the distinction has severe consequences because it really assaults the ability of God to transform lives. I mean, stop and think about it. If born-again Christians live no different than those who are not, What's that say about the power of God? What's that say about genuine salvation? What's that say about a God who can bring holiness to his people? It's a failure. If, quote, born-again Christians and non-Christians live the same kind of lives. My question to you this morning, is conversion just to produce a ticket to heaven? Is that all it's about? Well, according to Scripture, the one who is truly born again experiences an amazing transformation. And we could go around the room here this morning if we had time and you could tell me about the transformation that took place in your life when you came to Christ. When Christ saved you. At the point of conversion, the believer becomes, the Bible says, a new creation in Christ. And he's set free from the bondage of sin. The Bible says that you receive a new nature. And you walk in a spirit-empowered obedience as you submit to the will of God. Now, this doesn't mean that it's impossible for a believer to file for an unbiblical divorce or sin in any other way. We're still in the flesh. But it does mean that there's a difference between the children of light and the children of darkness. And that difference should be a marked one. It should be a vast one. The gospel does indeed change lives. I don't care what the polls say. What are we to make of these statistics then? Especially when you turn to the Bible and you find, well, God runs by a whole different set of standards. Do you know that in the Bible it actually teaches that God requires chastity before marriage? And that God requires fidelity after marriage? And that God requires a lifelong union of wives and husbands without the easy divorce escape route? See, when we compare the practices of God with our practices in our society today, you know what, we might come to the conclusion as the disciples did in Matthew 19, verse 10. Hey, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, maybe we just better not get married. And you hear that from young people. Oh, I don't want to get married. I don't want to end up like my mom and dad. No way, I'm not getting married. So what do they do? They date. And over a period of time, they date one, two, three, four, five, whatever, however many people. What are they doing? They're grooming themselves for divorce is what they're doing. Dating's not a good thing. Get close to somebody. Then they break up with you or you break up with them and then you move on to the next person. Well, what happens when you're finally within the confines of marriage and you're married to somebody? Well, you did it when you were dating. No, just leave. Just get a divorce. That's the mentality that people have today. And the disciples were just like, hey, it's better not even to get married. But you know what? Marriage is a good thing. We know that. God declares it to be good. The problem isn't with the institution of marriage, beloved, because it was God's idea. God can't come up with something that's not good. It was God who brought the first bride to the first groom in the Garden of Eden. Everything God does is good. The problem is not marriage. The problem is sin. That's the problem. The problem is with our own hard hearts which Jesus refers to, by the way, in verse 8 of our text in Matthew 19, which we're going to read in a couple minutes. He said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. See, this is why in Matthew's gospel, this long discussion on divorce, verses 1 through 12, immediately follows the equally long discussion on forgiveness in verses 21 through 35 of chapter 18. There's a connection there. As Christ's people, we need to forgive one another. And we need to forgive one another, and we need to know that we have been forgiven much by God. And so we shouldn't hold that forgiveness back from one another. And we know that marriage is the most intimate of all relationships. There's, there's, There's none more intimate than that. But you know what? We also realize if we live in reality that marriage can not only be the most intimous, intimate and joyous relationship, but it can also be the place that inflicts the most pain. A pain that goes right through the heart. And it follows that it's a relationship abo- above all other relationships. And that's why When Peter asked Jesus in chapter 18, well, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? You remember Jesus' answer? What? Seven times, 70 times seven. In other words, an infinite amount of times, Peter. You don't keep track when you're forgiving people. If you do that in your marriage, you're in big trouble. Now, continuing with this introduction, I want to make it clear that in the past, and some of you are older and you, you, you remember the days when marriages and families just seemed to stick together like glue. That's just the way it was. And the the whole idea of families splitting up and this whole divorce is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, it's always gone on, don't get me wrong, but not to the levels that we have it today. And John MacArthur points out three reasons why families were held together in the past. First of all, he says that there was a family moral force. Family moral force. In other words, you had a family, and a family meant something to you. Mom meant something. Dad meant something. Your kids meant something. Uncles and aunts, they all meant something. Family was a very important hub of society. Life revolved around the family. In the family, there was love. There was care. There was hope. There was comfort. And where all those things exist, there was security. And that's why people stuck together as families. That's why marriage is held together. But we see as society changed, the family began to fall apart. Part of that, by the invasion of the television by the workforce, people having to leave to go work all the time, by the, just the simple mobility of our society today, the invention of the automobile. All these things began to affect the family in an adverse way. And the family began to disintegrate. And there was no longer that cohesive unit, that moral force of the family that held it together. But he gives a second factor. Not only... The family moral force, but he says also there was community expectation. In other words, there was a certain amount of community tradition, a certain amount of peer pressure, you might call it. I mean, I can even remember back when hearing my, my family, my older brothers and sisters, talk about somebody getting a divorce. It wasn't celebrated, it was almost scandalous. And that's just in my lifetime. And so there was a certain pressure applied by the expectation of a community that valued marriage. And all that is gone. Community has abandoned the tradition of marriage today, if it has any tradition left at all. Thirdly, he points out, probably one of the most powerful forces that held marriages together in the past was the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the church. John MacArthur writes, but that too has been jettisoned conveniently as the slide has progressed and now you have even in the Christian church an emasculating of the biblical statements about divorce so that the church has moved to acquiesce to the demands of its constituency, which is pleading for more and more concessions all the time. And so you know what? What's the result? Divorce becomes literally a staggering reality. The family can't hold the marriage together. Community can't hold the marriage together. And you know what? It seems like even the church fails in that. And they've abandoned their role. I remember when I was working with the DA's office down in Riverside County, one afternoon I was in, a, in one of the attorney's office and I was talking to him and I saw the stack of stuff on his desk. And he was working on one of the cases that we were working on and, and his main emphasis was in family law. And I said, man, what is that? What is that? He goes, oh, those are files. Of what? People getting divorces? (laughs) Really? How many? there's probably 50 or 60 there. That's this month in Riverside County. It's one of the most pressing issues in our legal system. The leading caseload of law, of legal problems and issues, deals with family law. That's the largest list of dockets on any of our civil courts dealing with divorce. For every two marriages in America, there's one divorce. See, that's where they get that 50% Fifty percent of all... That, that, that's not what that's saying. It's saying throughout the year of 2010, there was 100 marriages and there was 50 divorces. For every two marriages, there's one divorce. It doesn't mean that you have a 50-50 chance if you get married, you're going to end in divorce. That's not what that's saying. But they take that and they twist it to make up that 50% idea. But we're forced today to recognize and deal with the fact of divorce. And it's very disturbing that the sacred bond of marriage is being torn apart, is being ruptured at an incredible rate. That's just the society we live in. And even the church has not been immune to this whole rampage. But really a lot of churches has caught the world's perspective more than it has the Bible perspective on this whole issue. And so I want to make a couple statements right up front, right up front, just to kind of get, get, the, get the elephant out of the room. OK? First of all, you have to understand, first of all, God hates divorce. He hates it. He says so in Malachi 2:16, "I hate divorce," says the Lord God of Israel." Very clear. He didn't stutter. He did not create Adam and Eve to divorce one another. He created Adam and Eve for a lifelong union, a lifelong intimacy, a lifelong life together. God is against divorce right up front. Now let me also say this, and please hear me on this. Divorce, beloved, is not an unpardonable sin. Divorce is not an unpardonable sin. If you're divorced, it doesn't mean that you've blown it forever. Neither does it mean that you maybe have to hope for some second-class slot in the kingdom of God because you're divorced. Unfortunately, that's the attitude of a lot of churches today. There's a lot of churches that would accept someone who's gone out and murdered people and repented and came to know the Lord. Sure, you can teach Sunday school. Oh, you're divorced? Oh, oh, no. No. We don't allow your kind here. It's ridiculous. Doesn't make sense. But God does hate divorce. He hates all sin. Why should that surprise us? And divorce is always the result of someone's sin. Maybe you were the innocent victim in your divorce or maybe you weren't. The truth is, to be honest, you know, I've never seen a case of divorce where Both parties somehow didn't contribute to the breakup. Either way, if you're divorced, God's mercy and forgiveness is just as available to you as it is to anybody else. Don't lose sight of that. That's so important to understand. However, if you're married and you're still married, you need to realize that God's plan for you is to stay married. There's no option. There's no second choice. Well, with that as our introduction, (laughs) okay, I want to read the text for us. And we're just going to touch on the first two verses of this today. But follow along with me in Matthew chapter 19, and I want to read verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. We're going to spend several weeks in that text. But first of all, I just want to give you a little bit of background and a little bit of information as far as where we're at in the book of Matthew and where Jesus is at geographically. And if you look at those first two verses, you've got to remember that for about two years, Jesus has been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been healing people all over Galilee and northern Palestine. And especially for the last two months, as we've gone through these last couple chapters, we notice that Jesus is pulling away from the crowds, and he's spending a lot more time with those 12 disciples that he's trying to pour everything he has into, because he knows he's going to be gone in a matter of weeks now. He's going to be dead, he's going to be in the grave, he's going to be raised from the grave, and then he's going to go to heaven. And it's up to his disciples to carry this on. And so he's trying to spend a lot of time with private instruction with the 12. And that's what he's been doing. But look at the first verse in Matthew 19, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings. Have we seen that before? I think we have. At the end of every one of Jesus' discourses throughout the Gospel of Matthew, whenever he ends a discourse, that verse is there. Those words are there. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, you can check it out in chapter 7, verse 28. He finishes the discourse, Sermon on the Mount. He finishes the discourse in chapter 11, verse one. He finishes the discourse in chapter 13, verse 53, and then here, and then also we're going to see it again in Matthew 26 verse one. But in this present passage, the phrase these words refers to is the, the discourse that the Lord just got done teaching on the childlikeness of the believer. And we've gone through that. You have to become a child to come into the kingdom. You have to be treated like a child. You have to be um, corrected like a child, disciplined like a child, forgiven like a child. And he's talked about all that. And he's given the disciples just before he left Capernaum all that information. And you remember while he was teaching them about this, he had a little child sitting on his lap as an illustration. And so here we see him headed to Jerusalem, and we're moving into this last, you might call it last phase of the life of Jesus Christ. He begins to move toward the cross. He begins to move toward the passion, the resurrection. So it's a very critical point in the Gospel of Matthew to understand what exactly is going on here. So he ends that discourse, and it says the next verse there, the next section of that verse says, He went away from Galilee. He departed from Galilee. You can write right in your Bible at that section and say, the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry is over. That's it. The people had their opportunity. They had their moment of truth. But now it's over. See, that's how God works in life. God brings us to a point in life where He gives us His truth over and over and over and over again, as Jesus did in Galilee. He was giving them His truth. He was healing people. They were seeing all these miraculous signs. And how sad it was, how pathetic it was that He was rejected by His own people. Even in His own town, they sought to kill Him. That's how the level of rejection Jesus had to deal with. And so at the end of the discourse, he said, you know what? I'm done. That's it. No more truth for you folks. I'm moving on. God does that. He does that even today. I've talked to Several people who are as far from God as you can get, and you start to talk to them about spiritual things, you know what they say? You know what? It's funny you mention that. I remember going to church with my grandma. She used to take me to Sunday school, every. Oh, we used to sing those songs, you know. Do they still sing those songs in church? They remember the time when they sat under the truth of the word of God, and yet they're so far from him. Because there was rejection on their part. So this first part of Matthew 19 is really the end of chapter 18. They didn't have the verses and all this stuff in the original text. We put that there so we can find our place and all that stuff. But that's not part of the original text. So he ends his discourse. He had already told the 12 disciples back in Matthew 16, verse 11, he said, it's necessary for me to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Remember, he already told them that. So he's, he's heading that way. But he's not going directly south. He's not just beelining it. He's going a little bit east. He's crossing over the Jordan to the other side. And I think we have a map here you can see. Uh, and he's kind of weaving his way down toward Jerusalem. But he's going to go through Jericho in and, and kind of a roundabout way. But it was a popular way to go. He wasn't making his own path here. But it actually, when he left Galilee, he proceeded south through a region of Judea, which is called Perea. And Perea basically means beyond. It means beyond the Jordan. And it was a relatively sparsely populated area, but at this point in Jesus' time, it it became a little more dense and it was building up. And so Jesus proceeded south, east, across the Jordan. Now remember, the Passover is on the way. We're only weeks away at this point. And so you had a lot of Jews traveling to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus went to Perea, you're thinking, well, there's not a lot of people there. Well, there would have been a lot of people there because they're all traveling there. And these great multitudes, it says in Mark chapter 10, and even here it says, they followed him, and what did he do? He healed them. Even though he wasn't dealing mainly with the crowds at this time, he still reached out his hand and healed them. And if you're interested in the ministry here of Perea, it's it's found in Matthew 19, which we're looking at now through through chapter 20. But he was always demonstrating his power and his compassion. And when Jesus healed people, it really showed the individuals that he said he, he was who he said he was. It showed them his divine messianic credentials. And where there was a need, that's where Jesus was. It's a good lesson for us. Where there's a need, that's where Jesus was. That's where help was given. When you see a need... As a Christian, it's almost your duty to help, to some degree. You might say, well, if that's the case, you know, you probably get taken advantage of a lot. Well, maybe so. But that's between God and that person. You're just doing what Christ would do. And so we enter into this final phase of the Gospel of Matthew. The final presentation of Jesus as the King, and the final rejection of the nation of Israel. Now, before we get to Jesus' last word on divorce, which we'll probably get to next week, I want to take just a brief time and talk a little bit about God's original intent for marriage. I think it would be hard for us, almost impossible for us to understand Jesus' teaching on divorce without first having a proper understanding, a proper dialogue, a proper uh, grasp of what God's original intent for marriage was. The reasons for marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Word of God says the only thing that was not good about creation was the fact that man was what? He was alone. I've read that many times, and I thought, you know, that would be a lonely place to be, all alone. Not another human being on the earth. The woman was created to meet the need of fellowship. I mean, Adam couldn't find fellowship with the animals. That may be hard for some of you animal lovers to figure this out. But it's true. I mean, animals fill a a big gap in our lives. I understand that. But listen, they're not humans. I mean, you you know, some of you folks, you you treat your little dog and your little cat and your little hamster and goldfish like, like they're... Another member of the family. I mean, I was talking to my daughter yesterday. And I said, well, what, what are you going to do for Father's Day, for Will? Oh, well, actually, it's Duke. Duke is a German shepherd. It's Duke's birthday. <laughs> it's his birthday. How do you even know when your dog was born? I mean, they bought it. so how do, It's just so weird to me. Well, we're going to make him a ground beef, you know, seven or something that he can eat. It's just crazy. They can have a birthday for their dog. I heard something on the radio the other day. It talked about someone was, and I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all for, you know, I don't personally, I'm, I'm allergic to pets. So, you know, keep them at arm's length. But you know i'm nothing against them I grew up around dogs and cats and horses and everything i heard something on the radio the other day somebody said you know they said they keep their their dog on the back porch or something and the, the caller was saying well that's that's inhumane and the talk show was, yeah it is because it's not human the dog is not human you know and sometimes we we fail to understand that now i understand that you know, I mean, people love their pets and, and all that kind of things. And, and But you know what? Adam looked around at all these different kind of animals that he had, and he said, this isn't going to work. This is not going to work. You know, I need somebody I can talk with. I need somebody that can dialogue with me. He couldn't find a companion who was equal to him. He needed that kind of fulfillment. And God's answer was to provide Eve. Eve. One of the first reasons for marriage was procreation. It says so in God's Word, Genesis 128. God says, be fruitful in what? Multiply. Multiply. And God's mandate was the first married couple. But marriage is also for our pleasure. I mean, From the beginning, it was God's command that that sex and the joy of sex be practiced within the commitment of marriage. Outside of marriage, sex becomes a destructive force in our society. We see it all around. But within the loving commitment of marriage, sex can be a joyous, creative, constructive thing. And also, just to prevent... Or the preservation of the human race. I mean, stop and think about it. If there was there was no marriage, if there was no Adam and Eve, we would not be here. We just wouldn't be here. I mean, God has a very high view of marriage. He uses it as an illustration for the intimate relationship between Christ and the church in Ephesians. Stop and think about it. Just as Eve was taken from the side of Adam, in Genesis 2.21 it tells us that, so the church was born from the suffering and death of Christ on the cross. Christ loves his church. He nourishes it with his word. He cleanses it. He cares for it. Guys, that's the role that we have to be as husbands. Christ's relationship to his church is an example for us to follow. Not that we're going to be perfect. We're far from it. Well, let's look at some characteristics of marriage. Because Jesus wanted his listeners to be reminded of who came up with the idea of marriage. Uh, we need to remember that these characteristics, if you remember them and if you, if you put them in the forefront of your mind as you're going through your own relationship, it really helps you to, to have an enduring marriage. First of all, it's divinely appointed, the union between a man and a man. And a woman is divinely appointed. God established marriage, beloved. Not the courts. God did. And therefore, only God can control its character and its laws. I don't care what the courts decide. They can change all they want. They can pass all the resolutions they want. It doesn't change what God initially divinely appointed as a union between a man and a woman. And it's just that. It's a physical union. It's a physical union. The man and woman become, it says, what? One flesh. That's physical. I mean, I understand it's important for a husband and wife to be of one mind and one heart and, you know, all that stuff. That's important. But the basic union in marriage is a physical union. I mean, stop and think about it. If a man and a woman became one spirit (laughs) in marriage, then death would never resolve would never dissolve the marriage. Because the Bible says that the Spirit lives forever. It never dies. I mean, even if a man or a woman disagree, or they're incompatible, as we like to say in today's society. Maybe they can't get along. You know why? They're still married. They're still married. Because the union is a physical one. Not only that, but it's a permanent union. God's design is was that one man and one woman spend one life together. I mean, we can see that even in our text. As he says in verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them what? Male and female. There's no other option there. It's male and female. And it's very interesting, in the original Hebrew, if you go back, it even goes to the degree of saying, He made, in the beginning, made them a male and a female. He didn't make one male and two females, or two females and one male, or two males and two females. He made one male and one female. That's it. God's original law knows nothing of, quote, trial marriages. I've heard people say, well, let's get married and see how it goes. It's like, whoa, what's that mean? God's law requires that the husband and the wife enter into marriage without reservations. Without reservations. Someone once asked me about, do you think it's okay for a Christian couple to have a prenuptial agreement? I said, what? Are you serious? Why? Why would you have to have a prenuptial agreement to somebody that you're going to be married to? Don't you trust them? And you're going to marry this person? Wow. It's a permanent union. There's no back door out of it. It's divinely appointed union. It's a physical union, a permanent union. Fourthly, it's a union between one man and one woman. They can do whatever they want with gay marriage. It makes no difference. A marriage is between a man and a woman. I don't care what the psychologists say. I don't care what the judges say. That's the way it's always been, and that's the way it's always going to be. They can change the law all they want. Well, let's look at the first point in your outline, and we'll just go over this quickly and close. The confrontation in verse 3. We see where Jesus is. We see where he's going. We see that God has a high view of marriage. And look at what happens in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Just stop there. The Pharisees came to him. I mean, it's so funny because these Pharisees have been outwitted by the Lord so many times. At every turn, every time they try to catch him, put him in a corner here comes another test. They're going to test him again. And you know what? This test is one that they calculated. They thought this out. And it's a very dangerous one. This is a potentially very deadly test that they're, they're putting Jesus through. And you say, well, why do you say that? The reason I say that is because it was John the Baptist himself that dealt with the very issue of divorce. Do you remember? And what happened to him? He lost his head. Because the leader didn't like what he said about... Him divorcing his wife and marrying someone else. That verb, test, means to tempt. It's the same word that's used in Matthew when Satan tempts Jesus. It's the same word when the Pharisees and the Sadducees demand a second, ta- a second sign from the Lord. When they're trying to trap Him. Their test was an action of malicious intent. They didn't want to learn from Jesus... They wanted to test him. They wanted to find fault with him. Jesus had always been criticized by these guys. And even before this time, they had become his arch enemies. And they even planned to kill him. All the way back to Matthew 12, verse 14. Well, who were the Pharisees? They're the largest, the most influential party of the religious leaders, of the Jewish religious establishment. And they basically had a lot of unbiblical traditions. They were very hypocritical in their lifestyles. And they were really the opposite of what true righteousness is. And they hated Jesus with a passion because when Jesus came on the scene, he basically stood up for everything that they didn't believe in. And he was making him look bad. So they came to him, this group of religious leaders, and they began to ask questions testing him, hoping that somehow they could cause him to fail publicly. They wanted to discredit him in the eyes of the public so that he would lose his popularity and eventually lose his life. Now, the question they ask is a question concerning divorce. It says, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You have to understand that in their culture, in, in the Jewish mindset, for centuries divorce has been this whole real volatile issue. And they constantly debated it back and forth among the Jews. And they had basically two different schools of thought within Judaism concerning divorce. And they, they really used divorce as a mechanism to carry out their own, their own will in life. They didn't really care about marriages. On one extreme, there was a group that was very uh, an opposing and much less influential group of rabbis. And they maintained that divorce was never, ever permissible ever that's they just had a very legalistic stance on it but then there was another group who basically said you know it's okay a matter of fact you can you can divorce your wife for some of the silliest reasons such as taking down her hair in public talking to other men burning the bread putting too much salt in the food. I mean, it's crazy. If you speak ill of your mother-in-law. Yeah, how many? Boy, we'd all be in trouble. So, His previous teaching on divorce, all the way back in in Matthew 5, when Jesus had said this, everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so now they expect him to take that same stand and thereby alienate and even intimidate the many of the Jews who were gathered there. They hope to discredit him publicly. The Pharisees knew exactly where Jesus was. He was in Perea. What's that mean? Well, Perea was under the rule of Herod Antipas. Who was Herod Antipas? Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch who had John the Baptist imprisoned and eventually beheaded for condemning his unlawful marriage to the Herodias, whom he took away from his brother. I mean, the Pharisees were calculating in their approach to Christ, and they wanted the same fate for Christ. And so they asked the question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? His first reply is there in verses 4 to 6. I'm just going to read read his reply, and we'll get into this next week. But Jesus answered, he says, Have you not read, he who created him from the beginning made him male and female? And like I said, you can read that, made them a male and a female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, that's all these characteristics of marriage coming out here. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man separate. That's how he answers their question. Very bluntly, very kind of in your face, here's what is said. And notice he says there in verse 4, have you not read? That's almost kind of a slap in the face to them because they're the keepers of the law. Kind of like, are you telling me you don't know this? Come on. That's what he's saying to them. And so he sets up the whole, the whole dialogue that we're going to be going through in the coming weeks. Have you not read the book of Genesis is what he's asking them? I would ask you, between now and next week, to go back and to read the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, read chapters 1, 2, and 3. You can read them pretty quickly. And that will really set our foundation for where we want to go in the coming weeks through this chapter of Matthew. But remember what I said at the beginning as we close. There's no question God hates divorce. It's a plague on our society. But it's a real plague. It's there. And ignoring it doesn't make it go away. And then secondly, I said, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. I mean, aren't you thankful that God, through his grace, allows you a second chance? A second opportunity? A second um, just chance at 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 marriage in general. I mean, what a glorious thing. So if you've been through a divorce, don't beat yourself up here today. That's not the purpose. But we do want to understand biblically what God has to say for it. And if you're not, not married here today, I would ask that you would realize that marriage is something that God holds way up there as a standard. It's not something to be trivial with it's not something to toy around with it's a commitment between a man and a woman for life that's the way he views it let's close in a word of prayer father we thank you for your word this morning lord we pray that as we close off our service with uh, song here this morning a hymn lord that you would just continue to minister your grace to our hearts lord i know there's people in this room who've gone through divorce i know that they've experienced it in a negative way Um, lord i pray that they may have even experienced a reproach of other people because of what they've gone through but lord i i also know that you're a gracious god and divorce is not a sin that's so bad that can't be forgiven. Lord, you, you hate all sin, not just divorce. And so, Father, I pray that we would not overlook the grace and the forgiveness that you offer us in Christ. And, Father, the, the really the opportunity for you to come into our lives and to change us and to make us all that you want us to be to help us to be vessels, a picture of your forgiveness, of your glory here in this lost and dying world. That when the outside world looks at us as a couple, if we are married, that maybe they would see something just a little bit different in our relationship. We're not perfect. None of us are. There's no perfect marriage. Because their marriages are made up of two sinners, hopefully, who are saved by your grace. And, Father, we just pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is yet to taste the experience, the forgiveness that you so freely offer, I pray that they would cry out to you today. Simple prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me this grace that this man speaks of. Save me. He'll answer that prayer. We thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.